It was July the 8th, 1741. Little town of Enfield, Connecticut, just on the northern border of, of Connecticut. It was Sunday morning and they were ready for church. The house was packed. They were meeting at what was called the townhouse meeting there in Enfield, and that was the local church. They only had one. And everybody was there because there was a guest preacher that morning, a man by the name of Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards. In fact, in our 845 service this morning, we had a relative of Jonathan Edwards with us. Jonathan was from Massachusetts, and he was there to preach that morning. He told the congregation to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. And as they turned there, he began to preach about the passage and the phrase that says, Your foot shall slide in due time. And the main point of his sermon was, God is angry with us because of our sinfulness, but his hand is holding back his wrath at this time. So he named the sermon, the title it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And God's wrath is, is holding back at this time. He's, he's sheltering us from his wrath. But one day he'll remove his hand and those of us who do not know Christ, our foot will slide and we will slide into the flames of hell. And he began to describe it. He said, quote, the wrath of God is burning. Can't you feel it? The pit is prepared. The fire is ready. The furnace is hot. The flames are glowing. And we are like spiders on a web dangling over the fires of hell. And at any moment, those spider web breaks and we tumble. And the congregation was in shock. They gripped the back of the pews. They were in fear. They, they, they moaned. There were gasps throughout the congregation. And one man stood up and said, Stop, Brother Edwards. Let me get saved right now. And he says, No, we'll continue. And that sermon, more than any other single event, that one sermon in Enfield, Connecticut, there's a marker there today, sparked the first great awakening in the United States, spread through the North America, spread throughout Europe. And that one sermon has been characterized as the reason. Preached it two other times, but the one in Enfield, Connecticut, was the spark that God used. That has been considered the greatest sermon ever preached in Christian history. That's what scholars say. But I know of one more that's better. The sermon preached by Jesus on a Galilean hillside in the first century, known as the Sermon on the Mount. That was the most powerful and the most impactful sermon ever preached and ever heard. Since I've been your pastor, I have preached almost, almost 1,500 sermons Bless your heart, nobody should have to listen to me that much. <laughs> 1,500. And none of mine have been close to the power and the impact of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So this morning, we are beginning a 17-week 
sermon series, verse by verse, through the entire sermon. We're looking at everything Jesus had to say. And, and we're looking, the, the title of the series I've entitled, Exceed. Because if you can summarize this entire sermon in one word, it's the word exceed. Jesus said, you have heard, this is what spirituality looks like, but I'm telling you, you must exceed what you think. You have heard it said before, but I say unto you, and he always raises the standard. We're going to look in a couple of weeks at Matthew 5, 20, where Jesus looked at them and said, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And they're thinking, what? The scribes and Pharisees are the most godly spiritual people we know. How can ours exceed theirs? But Jesus was saying, they focus, focus on, the, on the external. I'm focusing on the internal, your heart. And we're going to be looking at this for the next 16 weeks after, after today. So, I want us to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning as the sermon begins. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he taught them. Now, we'll stop there because what I want us to do this morning, I want us to set the background of the sermon. It'll, it'll be much more impactful for you as we go along if we look at the background to the message itself. Letter A on your outline, let's look about the sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, 5, 6, and 7, 109 verses. It is the longest recorded sermon of Jesus that we have. Now, he preached a lot. In fact, some people say, well, Jesus was a teacher. No, he's a preacher and a teacher. The word caruso is used. It means to herald. It's the word for preaching in the New Testament. He preached and he taught. And so we don't really have any written sermons of Jesus except this one. The Sermon on the Mount contains some of the most famous sayings Jesus ever spoke. It is one of the most widely quoted sections of the Gospels. We're going to look at the Beatitudes next week. He, we know those, blessed are you, and it goes on all the blessedness. And, and then the Lord's Prayer, and so many famous passages were spoken by Jesus in this sermon. Chapter 5, in fact, of Matthew is quoted by the church fathers far more than any other chapter in the entire Bible. So down through Christian history, the scholars have pointed back to Matthew 5 as the key chapter. That's the first one-third of his sermon. What I also find interesting is this was preached 2,000 years ago, but it contains topics that are hot buttons for our culture today. He talks about justice for the needy, how you treat the poor. He talks about divorce. He talks about judging others. Boy, that's a hot button, isn't it? You can't judge me. Well, we're going to see what Jesus says about judging. Did he really say that? But it's interesting to me that his sermon preached 2,000 years ago still applies to what we hear and how we live. 
You see, the sermon emphasized the moral teachings of the gospel. How are we to live as followers of Christ? That's what it addresses. How do you live as a believer? Now, many churches, they're more interested in getting people down the aisle to say that prayer. You know what I'm talking about. You need to say that prayer. You need to ask Jesus into your heart. And we emphasize emphasize that so much, you can go out and live like you want, it seems like. Jesus really didn't talk about saying that prayer. He talked more about how do you live once you're saved. Once you receive Christ as Savior and Lord here, when you go out the doors, how do you live? He was more concerned about that. You come into the faith through you come into the faith with a prayer of faith in Jesus Christ, but then you go and live, and he's telling us how we should live out there. Augustine said, This is the perfect standard of the Christian life. Luther said, it's impossible to live what Jesus taught. It's only an ideal. We we fall short. Don't even try because you're going to be frustrated to live like this. What Martin Luther said. But Jesus gave it not as just an ideal, but as an expectation. He expects us, First Baptist Church of Garland, to live like that. This sermon has been admired by a lot of people. Gandhi has admired it. Uh, G.C. Montefiore, one of the most popular Jewish scholars who wasn't a believer, they have admired the Sermon on the Mount. But it's more than just admiration. It is how you're to live and I'm to live. Whenever Jesus spoke these words, they would have been revolutionary. They would have been shocking. Because the emphasis was on the outward. And Jesus said, not just the outward. I'm emphasizing who you are, not just what you do, but who you are. And so whenever he spoke it, it was shocking. Letter B, let's go to the setting. When did Jesus preach this? As soon as he started. He began his earthly ministry, 30 years old. He was baptized in the Jordan River by John, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, went after the wilderness for 40 days, began preaching, and immediately went to Capernaum and preached the Sermon on the Mount as soon as he started. He wanted us to know from the very beginning, here's what I expect. He's in Capernaum. The Bible says he was in Capernaum. He went out of the Capernaum to preach on a mountainside. He went back to Capernaum. So, you look at that and you say, where do we know where that was? Yeah, I think we do. If you go to Capernaum today, many of you have been there. We we take a group once a year. Capernaum is one of our stops. If you go east, there's not a mountain. It's the little community fishing village of Bethsaida, which is an inlet of the Sea of Galilee. If you go to the, to the south, it's the sea. If you go to the north, it's kind of rolling hills. But as you go to the west, there is a mountain that perfectly describes the setting. Now, there are two theories as to where Jesus actually preached this. One theory is farther up north, if you go about 20 miles up to the north, there's a mountain that, that juts up 1,800 feet above sea level, and it looks like, it looks like horns. So they named it Karn Hatin, meaning horns. 
And so a lot of people feel like Jesus went up to this mountain. He was on this very top of the mountain, and they were down below, and it was a long stretch to get to speak to them down there. But that's probably not where it was. Just outside of Capernaum, a mile and a half, we were there just recently, there is a, a mountain that perfectly fits the shape of what is described here. It's flat, it gets higher, and a person could very easily stand on this mountaintop and preach to those below. But it wasn't as high as 1,800 feet. Here's a picture we took of it whenever last time we went. My son took this picture on his iPhone. And, and what you see there is, you see the tarps covering banana trees? They raise bananas on the location today. It used to be public domain, but now it's private. The Roman Catholic Church owned it. They sold it to a private individual who's harvesting bananas there and puts the tarp over it to keep the moisture in. But the, the spot right there was most likely exactly where Jesus, and then you're, you're the crowd down here below, and the mountain goes slopes up, and most likely he was there. In the 4th century A.D., they found a mosaic tile there that the early believers thought that to be the spot where Jesus preached this, and they worshiped there. Today, there's a church there called the, Mount, the Church of Beatitudes, run by the Catholics. There's a monastery as well. Most likely... That is the exact spot where Jesus preached this. Now, let's ask some questions about the sermon. Three of them. Letter C on your outline. Three questions. Question number one, as I look at the sermon, I have to ask, is it two sermons or one? Why do, you, why do, why do we ask? Matthew records three chapters of a long sermon. If you go to Luke, he records... A shorter sermon, chapter 6, verses 17 to 49, and he calls it Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Well, a plain is not a mountain. They're opposite. So, did Jesus preach two sermons, one on the mountain and one on the plain, and Luke recorded one and Matthew recorded one? Maybe, but the only problem is Luke's content is identical identical to Matthew's. This is the same sermon. If he did preach to, it's the exact same sermon. But here's most likely what happened. There's one sermon. Matthew recorded it. Luke recorded it. If you stand in that location, there is a, it, the, the, the ground gently slopes up to a mount, and down below there is a plain and a flat area before you get to the sea. Very possible Jesus was on standing on the side of the mountain preaching. They were on the flat plain before, beside the Sea of Galilee, and it was both. It was the Sermon on the Mount, and it was the Sermon on the Plain. Because you had both. Most likely, one sermon. Question number two. How did the crowd hear? I always wondered that. I mean, we got here, what, four or five hundred people, you knew we need a microphone so you can hear. They had thousands and they're outside. How on earth did they hear him? Whenever you go there, you can picture it. It, it forms like an amphitheater. And the acoustics are amazing. Before this was sold to the banana farmer, this land, and it was private property, when we first started going to Israel years and years ago, this was public property. You could go out there. It wasn't banana farms, it was just a hill. And you could go out there, and our guide would speak and have others get down below. 
and he would just say something in just a normal voice. And it's amazing how you could hear him. And so it, it, the acoustics are just incredible. Very easily, Jesus, the master orator, one short, concise statement after another, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. It would ring out and be powerful, and everybody would hear. Third question, to whom was the sermon addressed? Who was he preaching to? This is vital. Well, what does it say in the passage? Verse 1, seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, sat down, his disciples came, he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Who's them? The crowds or the disciples? We don't know. But it makes a huge difference. If he's preaching to the crowds, those are lost people. Those are non-saved. They're just, they heard the preacher and they just show up. But if he's preaching to the disciples, he's preaching to saved folks. So is this passage for the saved or for the lost? We don't know. But the context gives us a clue. Here's most likely what happened. Jesus saw the thousands of people, it's described at the end of chapter 4, coming to him, and they all gathered. He saw the crowds. He called his disciples apart. He taught the disciples how they're to live, but he wanted all the crowd to hear how his followers are to live. Wow, that's, if that's the case, that's significant. First of all, I've never known Jesus ever to expect lost people to act saved. Why would he give them three chapters on how to live saved when they're lost? So obviously, I believe he was preaching the disciples. This is how you live as a follower. But he wanted all the crowd to hear what he said. If that's true, folks, here's what it means. Jesus has a standard as a follower of Christ you need to live by. But he wants all the world to know how you're to live to see if you do. That's significant. And they have every right in the world outside this building to look at our lives and see if we're walking the way he said to walk. It looks like he addressed the disciples in front of the crowds. Now let's go to letter D on your outline, connection to Moses. I find this fascinating. What you see in the Sermon on the Mount is a strong connection between our Lord and Moses in the Old Testament. In Jewish history, all through the Old Testament, they were looking forward to that. They, they taught that one day someone greater than Moses would come to lead the Israelites. And they're all going, who's greater than Moses? But they call him the prophet that would come after Moses that will be greater than Moses. And they expected that to be the Messiah. So they call this person that prophet. 
all through the Old Testament. Notice the phrase, that prophet. It's talking about the Messiah to come. So whenever Jesus showed up, started preaching and teaching and healing, people came up and said, are you that prophet? That's what they're talking about. Are you the Messiah? Because one day, someone's coming greater than Moses. So Jesus shows up. His ministry begins. And he begins teaching them on a mountain. Moses, in the Old Testament, went up a mountain to Mount Sinai and got the law. And the law said, here's what you are to do. You shall not commit adultery. And Jesus goes one step further and says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, those who even look lustfully upon a woman have already committed adultery. And you've heard Moses say, thou shalt not murder, but I say unto you, he takes it one step further, if you're even angry with somebody, you've killed them. So Moses and Jesus that prophet, someone greater, he took what Moses said and he elevated it to your motive, not just your action. Yes, that prophet's here. And he's greater than Moses. And the Sermon on the Mount all the way through shows a strong connection back to the law and back to Moses. Now, what about us? Letter E on your outline. What about us? When Jesus finished the sermon, I'll talk about this, the very last sermon of the sermon series. When Jesus finished preaching this sermon, here was the response of the crowd. They were astonished. The word that's used there, ekpliso, literally means absolutely shocked, in awe, and literally means to strike with a blow with your fist. So their response was, man, that was a good sermon. Did you hear what he said? They struck with their fist. They were moved. It impacted them. And so here's my challenge. Over the course of the next 16 weeks, after today, we're going to start looking at those words that cause such a reaction. And I'm going to ask you to be here, to prayerfully evaluate your life. We get in such a, a pattern and a habit, and we are who we are. But I'm going to ask you to prayerfully evaluate your life in light of not what I say but your master said about how Christians are to live in this sermon God's children are to live like God that's what he said Jesus followers in this sermon he said are to live in a noticeably different way because of the standard Jesus holds us to we don't like to stand out. We like to fit in. But Jesus said, if you're a follower of mine, the way you live, the way you talk, where you go, what you drink, what you think, how you make decisions, how you live your life, noticeably different 
and the lost. So, I challenge you, the next 16 weeks, hear what he says. Make the changes you must. And listen carefully. Because they have every right out there to make sure we're doing what our boss told us to do. One of the things I find interesting in this sermon is Jesus basically hinted at the fact that we should live better than they expect us to. This morning, lost people have an expectation of you and me. Me as a preacher, you as a Christian. They have in their minds what we should be like. And Jesus said, we ought to be better than that. Better than their expectations. How do we get there? He said, listen to my words. Apply them to your life. The next 16 weeks are going to be important. Now, let me say this. If you've never, if you've never chosen to follow Jesus yet, some of you haven't, I encourage you to do that today and then for the next 16 weeks listen to what it means to be a follower of Christ. So start today. A couple of minutes, we're going to have an invitation. We're going to stand. We're going to have ministers down here. You, you come. Tell them you want to receive Christ. Today's the day. Start today. And then for the next 16 weeks, figure out how to live. I've had a lot of people say, well, I'm, I'm not going to become a believer until I get my life straightened up. No, no. You, you, you come into the faith in the next 16 weeks, he'll straighten your life up. So you come this morning. If you're online, contact us. You come to the faith today. Leo Tolstoy was a, an, an author, one of the greatest authors of all time. He was a Russian. Lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1902 to 1906 and nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize 1901, 1902, 1909. Great impact upon Western civilization. But nobody could ever figure out what does he believe spiritually? What is Leo Tolstoy's religion? They couldn't figure it out. Early in his life, he read a book by Schopenhauer entitled The World as Will and Representation. And after reading that, he said, my religion is I am an ascetic moralist. That's my religion. That's what I believe. I'm an ascetic moralist. And then after a while, a few years, that kind of wore off. He said, you can only deny yourself so much. <laughs> And then it becomes meaningless. And so then, at the middle portion of his, of his life, he, he read teachings from Jesus and from Hindus and Buddhists. And he, and he put a combination together of Hinduism, Buddhism, and, and Christianity. And he said, this is, this is my religion. This is what I believe. And his religion basically was denying your will and taking up a vow of poverty. So he dressed like the peasants and lived poorly. That's what I believe. This is my religion. And that went for a while and it wore off. And at the end of his life, something interesting happened. 
Leo Tolstoy read the Sermon on the Mount and he said everything changed. I embrace Jesus and the teachings of Jesus exclusively. He wrote a book, 1884, entitled What I Believe. And in the book, he says, I am decidedly a Christian. I read the Sermon on the Mount. It made such, a, it's such an impact upon me. My life's different. It changed. I will forever be a follower of Christ. And he never changed his religion again. This sermon can impact you like that. And that's my prayer for you.